0: In season four of Franchise Findings, we're gonna go through the 2022 data that we collected from franchise disclosure documents, FDDs, SBA franchise loans, franchise war conversations, and directly from franchisees themselves. So we'll give you an update on what franchises have emerged from the pandemic, like a phoenix, and which ones have really struggled and got hit hard during the, the COVID-19 pandemic stay tuned and don't forget to subscribe to our our podcast as well as leave a review on apple or spotify patrick findaro here co-founder at vetted biz very excited to have on scott greenberg Uh, i finished reading his book just about a month ago and reached out over linkedin to have him on i learned a ton from his book and his insights on the mentality that wealthy franchisees have to grow their systems have a better personal life make more money and be really truly fulfilled and what sets them apart from franchisees that haven't been fulfilled and, and aren't making their monetary goals and family goals, et cetera. So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, that was probably a bad summary of, uh, of everything that, that the book encompasses, but very excited about Scott Greenberg, author, speaker, and essentially helps franchisees grow um, and grow, grow financially, but that's not the only aspect uh, as we'll get into today. So Scott, thanks for joining today. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this, Patrick. So maybe you could give a little introduction about yourself, for those that haven't read the book yet, a little bit about your, your family and, and upbringing and how you entered into the, uh, the franchising arena.
1: Sure. Well, I grew up the son of a serial entrepreneur, my father had all kinds of businesses growing up. Some were franchises, some were not. Um, some were success stories, some were cautionary tales. So I watched his journey and I felt his journey. And in any, any given year, we, I would know how well his businesses were doing based on the quality of Hanukkah gifts that we got. So one year we all got Sony Walkmans, which I'm aging myself here, but dating myself. So I knew that businesses are going well. Another year we all got like manicure kits, like nail files. So I'm like, that is a good job. Um, but my father always did these things. And so for me, it was very normal. But when I got married, my wife was the daughter of a college professor. It's had two jobs his entire life. So the idea of like, you know, getting into a business, I knew nothing about for her was like absolutely crazy. For me, it, it was normal. And so what happened was I was doing motivational speaking for a number of years, talking about, you know, resilience and peak performance and leadership. A lot of people, in my audiences had more leadership experience than me. And that always bothered me. I didn't want to be one of these talking heads who just... You know, repeats these cliches, so bothered me. And I saw an airline magazine ad for a new franchise called Edible Arrangements. We had nothing like that in Los Angeles. I thought this is really cool, and the idea of a franchise was great because I didn't necessarily know, you know, what kind of business I wanted to have. But I figured they could teach me how to do it, but also could be a laboratory for me—a place to try out concepts I've been sharing on stage to see what works and what's ridiculous. And so I did it, and very quickly I learned how much what I was saying on stage did not translate to the real world. And so that, that helped my business a little bit, but my business really helped my speaking because it gave me truth and it gave me an opportunity to experiment. So, you know, I had to unlearn a lot of things and really hit the reset button, but I still have an income from speaking. So that gave me the opportunity to be curious and to experiment and really figure out what works. So through a lot of time, a lot of mistakes, we figured it out and got better and better and better. And then we, We built the number one location of edible arrangements in California. Then we took over one of the worst and we turned that around within a year using the same tactics and things that I learned from the first business. And then I started getting invitations to speak to other franchise systems about what their franchisees can do to be successful. And I always interview a whole bunch of them before every presentation. I still do this to this day. So over the years, I've either surveyed or or met with, interviewed thousands of franchisees. Um, I hear their complaints, their questions, but I also see the best franchisees. Who might call wealthy franchisees, and I see what they all have in common. So all my work is about helping franchisees understand what great franchisees do to be successful, and the good news is it's all things that could be replicated. So my work is I'm brought in to speak to franchisees or to work with franchisees one-on-one to help them understand the mindset and the tactics that enable them to succeed.
0: And before you opened a uh, edible arrangements, got to the second location, had you ever managed people? Because I imagine you went from you know being a solopreneur and 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 having these speaking arrangements to then having to manage a bunch of, of, of people overnight.
1: I had not the way that publicly would have given me a lot of credibility, but through really valid sure. experience. When I was in high school, I was in student government, like you know class president which involved like leading a lot of people, immature, inexperienced people. Um, But I still had responsibilities. Proms had to get planned. Things needed to happen. So I did a lot of that. And then I got hired by a student leadership organization to help run camps and train people. to do So there was some experience, but it wasn't necessarily in a business setting where you have those kinds of metrics and the same kind of pressure where the stakes are, are very high. So I knew something about it, and academically I knew plenty, but I really hadn't like invested my own money and got my hands dirty um, and, and experienced that to the extent that I think would have been helpful in those early years. That's why, you know, running my own businesses were so vital for me to have that credibility and experience.
0: And when you're doing these surveys, talking to thousands of franchisees, what's what do you think is like the number one, two question that that you ask, and that that. And what they respond with is super telling on kind of where they fit on the scale of what being a wealthy franchisee or potentially a a lesser performer.
1: The questions that yield the most useful information would include, what about this do you find most challenging? Why do you believe the people who are successful are successful? And then when I'm talking to successful people to ask them the same question and to hear their responses. You get a lot of assumptions when you ask these questions, a lot of accusations. You know, when people are struggling, often there's a tendency to blame, blame the franchisor, blame the economy, blame the pandemic. You know, it's, it's a human instinct, it's people getting their own way. And it's not that these things aren't real, but they don't really tell the whole story because for every excuse someone gives me as to why they're not successful in franchising, I can find another franchisee in the same system, same circumstances, but they're killing it because they have figured out in those circumstances what could be done differently. So it's a lot about asking them about performance, their beliefs about performance, what their challenges are. I like to inquire about the relationship between franchisees and franchisor to understand what that culture is like. All that usually produces some very insightful information that I can then work into my presentations.
0: And before you decided to move forward with Edible Arrangements, like did you, did you interview franchisees? Did you understand like, how happy people were with that, with that franchise system or how unhappy they were?
1: Yeah. So part of it, I got right. and Part of it, I totally got wrong. Part I got wrong is I saw the ad for Edible Arrangements and I thought, okay, I'm interested in opening that franchise. Like I didn't talk to any other franchises. Like, like I should not, I mean, it worked out really well for me, but I would never recommend that approach to someone else. But before signing on the line, I did interview a lot of franchisees and they gave me a list of people to call, but that's like, you know, asking a job applicant to provide references. They're not going to give you names and phone numbers of unhappy people. Of course. So I, I call the people on the list, but then I just, because I speak and travel, every city I was in, I visited local item arrangements and I stopped by and looked around, try to engage the manager if the owner was there. People who corporate didn't necessarily have on the approved list of people to talk to, I talked to those people as well. But, you know, I always tell people when I'm advising them, when they're going through that, that process of the validation process, it's like, it's like going on the Internet. You can't just read one or two reviews. You have to kind of like weed out nice. the crazy people. And you also need to be careful when those calls about, you know, are you asking questions about their opinion? Like, do you enjoy it? Are you glad you yeah. did it? Well, that's subjective. You know, much better questions are. You don't know
0: their scale of like. Yeah. That, and their scale of enjoyment
1: versus dissatisfaction. Their temperament, their values. It's better to ask questions like, "What did this really cost you?" You know, what kind of, you know, how much does your location matter? What does the company do to promote culture? We can get more objective answers. So I did ask a lot of those kinds of questions, and so I felt good by the time I pulled the trigger.
0: And how long were you a franchisee in the Edible Arrangement um, organization? A little over ten years. Okay, so, you know,
1: I, I didn't make the decision to sell soon enough and you know, I had a great 10 years, really glad I did it, but the time came for me to move on. Uh, but in order for me to sell, I had to re up at the 10 year mark. Um, so I had long enough so then I could go through the process of selling. them.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, for those that are, are, are listening, usually franchise agreements are, are 10 years, sometimes they're 20 years or five years, but usually uh, 10 years is standard. And. I mean, there are systems like we started talking about offline, like Burger King and big brands that most franchisees are multi-unit operators and they're having like five, 10, hundred locations. Uh, but there's other franchise systems where you have just most of the owners are, are, are operating just a single unit and, and can scale potentially through that single unit. Um, but the model is different. Um, what led you to opening that, that second location, or I should say taking over? Uh, a struggling location uh, from someone that was in your your area? A little bit of fear, a little bit of ego, and a little bit of ambition.
1: The fear is that someone else would take over the location. It was our neighboring store, and they were underperforming, which is, it's mixed. Like you think, well, they're underperforming, well, then it's great. But the problem is every customer who they anger, you know, for everyone that says, well, we're going to try your location because they're terrible. I'm wondering how many are just going to be turned off by edible arrangements altogether. But their sales are low, and um, they called me first because we had this top location. But I was concerned that someone else would come in and build it up, and that might cut into um, to our sales. So part of it was fear. I didn't want FOMO. I didn't want to miss on an opportunity. Part of it, the ambition part was, yeah, I wanted to to make more money. Um, the ego part, I'd go to the edible arrangements conventions, and I would see the ribbons that people have hanging from their name tags. And there was always one that said, multi unit an operator? And they were the cool kids. <laughs> So I spent a hell of a lot of money to get that ribbon. But I also wanted the experience. Like, you know, I never thought I was going to get rich just running a franchise. The purpose of it was a secondary stream of income in addition to the speaking business. So I never needed Open20, though. I think with Edible Arrangements, a lot of brands, opening a lot of units is really smart. And that brand is in particular. But that wasn't my goal. My goal was to learn and to, um, you know, get things I could use on stage. So part of it was, can I open one brand new and build it up? then can I take one that's struggling and turn it around? That would give me the credibility and answer the questions. Do I really know what I'm talking about? If not, what's it going to take? So I got that information. And so I was able to achieve those goals. And um, and then the time came, it just felt like it was good for me to f- get back to fully committing to speaking and, and helping others. But, but admittedly, yes. I, 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 I can't imagine
0: like like what percent of speakers like go through what you did. Like you seem like one of those method actors that like really go into a character and like live in a desert for like three months uh, well, to it's, really...
1: <laughs> most speakers, they accomplish something first, then they go out and yeah. talk about it. And not that I had... I mean, I started off as an overcoming adversity speaker. When I was in my 20s, I was going to film school and I was diagnosed with cancer. And so I had to drop out of film school. But actually during chemotherapy, um, I noticed all these different cancer patients who some were about equally sick, but they had different reactions, different mindsets, and I saw how much that affected their experience. And film school, they always trained us to pay attention to the human condition. So you can tell authentic stories. story. So I noticed those differences that made me curious, and I think that's why I was attracted to franchising. In a way, it's the same thing. I mean, not to compare running a franchise to having cancer, but it's all these people in the same circumstances making different choices and reacting differently. That was fascinating for me. That was consistent with the things I was talking about as a speaker. but yeah, I wanted to get some more experience so I could get up on stage and actually have some substance and not just be someone who's regurgitating the latest pop culture, um, personal
0: growth book. Yeah. And like 10 years, it's like 10 years of material that you're living day in, day out. So <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and honestly, just as a, when I'm doing straight out motivational speaking, not necessarily for franchise, but for other businesses, there's so much of what I experienced during those 10 years that can be generalized to other businesses or other areas of life, because Running a franchise, it's an emotional journey as much as a financial one. There's some universal concepts there that I think are, are useful for all of us.
0: And from dealing with like other franchisees, because I remember from the book, you know, there was a benefit of having everyone know in L.A. County that edible arrangement exists, that you can uh, order it uh, as a gift, whether you're a company or you know, real estate offices. Um, and kind of like putting it on the map and like colluding together with other franchisees to like further promote and have like a pooled marketing expense. But there were some franchisees that didn't want that, some that were on board, any advice for, for kind of franchisee collaboration and like, so kind of everyone rises together instead of like more like too much competition between, between the franchisees. A
1: lot of it has to do with franchise culture. You know, really great franchise cultures encourage collaboration, encourage the community. A lot of brands don't bother with that, and they pay a price for it because franchisees can be competitive, especially if there's like territories, you know, that kind of thing. You know, we weren't just a storefront. Most of what we did was, you know, delivery, and there was some shared space. So there was some competition there, which in some cases kind of held us back. I think in most cases, a franchisee is best off being collaborative. Don't get into franchising if you're not interested in being part of this larger thing, you have your business, but you're part of a larger brand. And if the brand does well, it lifts up all the franchisees, not just in terms of their individual sales, but the value of the individual businesses. If the brand is strong. Someone's going to you know, want to buy your store for more money down the line. So I think that that collaboration is really important. Uh, you can save money with purchasing. Certainly save money with advertising and emotionally you can also just be there for each other.
0: And how can franchise brands be more selective in, in having those wealthy franchisees that already have the mindset come into their system instead of like converting the mindset, which we can get into that later too?
1: Well, I mean, for me, you have sort of raised the question that it's sort of a sore point for me in the franchise world. I believe that you're not just franchisors. You're not just building a brand. You're building a culture. And there are some times who are development people who will just sell to anyone. And then once the person buys, then they get pushed to operations. And the operations then have to deal with whoever they brought in. To me, the best brands are selective and they're exclusive. But they know that opportunity is not for everyone. Some brands, you know, I I had one person uh, who works in the the sales part of development and said, you know we don't turn anybody away we're here to build a business and and they have had sort of big mission statement why would they want to deprive someone of not being part of the mission because it's not a good fit it's not good for everyone and your worst franchisees are going to bring down the brand and so having the stomach to say gosh we love your money but you're not a good fit for our culture Are you willing to turn people away and say no especially in those early years where those franchisees are really meaningful that takes some discipline so it's having long-term vision and really wanting to build something with legs not every franchisor is willing to do that so when i advise franchisees what to look for is they should be selective like it shouldn't be easy for you to walk in just because you're financially qualified because if they're going to let anybody you know they're going to let you in without really vetting your personality your sensibility well that's how they're selecting other franchisees and those franchisees are going to be bad for your business because people are going to be talking about their experience there and they're going to post about it so I think for franchisors, it's about just having a discipline to hold out for the right people. And, you know, just like you wouldn't, hopefully you wouldn't marry the first person who has romantic interest in you. I don't think you should sell a franchise to anybody who's interested or has, you know, not if you really are playing the long game.
0: Yeah, you made up a really good point. Like kind of everyone having like the same mission and like objective where you have a bit of an agency issue where you have the franchise development person that might be getting compensated on, on the franchise fees coming in. And then his colleagues might be compensated on total system-wide sales like year-over-year growth and and other categories that you know ideally everyone's kind of working towards the same metrics and we see time over time analyzing franchises that on the item 21 the ones that have um, much more royalties collected and it's going up year-over-year as opposed to franchise fees collected tend to have pretty good systems and, and people are happy, you know, part of those franchise yeah. systems.
1: You know, real estate agents don't have to live in the homes that they buy. So it's easy for them to, to broker them, <laughs> right? And so it's not, and I think a lot of development people are, are great and you know, so they're growing the organization, which is good for franchise, you know, franchisees individually, generally speaking. But I do think there's something that's ethical here because you don't want to set someone up for failure. You know, you're dipping into their life savings. I just, I just think it's wrong. And I think that ethically a franchisor needs to get a franchisees back. And if you don't care about ethics and morality, okay, maybe just care about money. What's going to make you the most money in the long term is really building the right system with the right people, not bringing a bunch of people in who are going to drive you crazy and who are going to be bad for the brand.
0: Yeah, and it seems like long term, whether their incentives are like a nice cash flowing business and and having this franchise brand that gives nice cash flow or potentially selling the business uh, years later. And I mean, valuations are super high uh, right now. You know, people are selling their franchise systems for like 20x, 25 times EBITDA. So no one's going to pay that if you have a a high churn system and you're not getting a very nice royalty stream that keeps going up. So
1: You also want franchisees who are going to validate, who are going to tell other pres- other prospective franchisees, "Yeah, this is a great brand. It's a great system." If you bring in the wrong people, they're not going to talk. They're not going to perform that way. They're going to blame the franchisor, and they're not going to say great things. They're not going to validate well. So it's just, I just think that for, you know, as franchisors grow, they need to have that long-term vision, and you know, and resist the urge to get those quick, easy franchise fees. I believe me. I understand. with the beginning, when they're not having positive cash flow. Um, I, I understand the, the temptation, but you got to do it right from the beginning.
0: Is there hope for those franchisees that aren't quote unquote wealthy franchisees yet to kind of convert their mindset and become wealthy franchisees? I think there's hope for some of them. For some, there is not. Uh, That's not what people want to hear.
1: But the ones who aren't, they're not going to read my book anyway, so I don't care. Most yeah. <laughs> most franchisors. Either formally or informally, they will break down their franchisees into subgroups. Um, usually, it's three groups, but sometimes it's more. But three groups: they have their high performers, they have those who are just struggling, and then those who are in between. I think for those who are in between, that's the greatest time for the greatest opportunity for franchisors to lift them up to make them more like those what I call wealthy franchisees. The struggling franchisees: it's not that it can't be done, but they're so draining of time and energy and resources that you end up neglecting that metal group and other people. So not that franchisors shouldn't make good on the promise. There's a franchise agreement, so they have to provide a certain level of support, but the energy and time it's going to take to really totally convert their mindset is just not going to yield as many benefits. as working on those mid-level people who just need a little bit more push, a little bit more encouragement, a little more perspective. So I tell franchisors, you know, don't neglect the struggling franchisee, you don't want to get sued, you know, honor your agreement, but your best time is spent on that middle group and definitely reinforcing the top group. But I do think that a mindset can be enhanced. And I'm brought in to help do that. I mean, I very much think that that is a real thing. But the question is, where are you most likely to get results? And I think it's with that mid level group.
0: Where to focus energy? And I mean, that it will essentially move the bell curve over if, if that middle group is performing better. And then the bottom 10%. Like other franchisees could acquire those stores, franchisors could buy them back. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't really make sense to focus on the worst performers that pay the least in royalties and have the least likelihood to convert to being in the middle or a top performer.
1: There are people who probably should have never been in the system and helping them exit the system, especially if they're gonna exit willingly, you might be doing them a favor because now you're gonna avail them to other opportunities where it might be a better fit.
0: Any like suggestions on like the interpersonal side. So for those that are maybe going into business for themselves for the first time, leaving the corporate, uh, life, just like conversations with your spouse and maybe your spouse is employed and has never been an entrepreneur and comes from a, you know, a family similar to your, your wife where, you know, the father had just two jobs and that's kind of all she knew in this case. Um, but kind of curious to see if you have any any suggestions there or, or any experience share on, on kind of just communications with a spouse as you decide to go into business ownership. For me, it was earrings. I said, I'll buy you earrings if you just let me. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: it's actually not true. My wife really kind of put me through the ringer and she should have because I was a bit impulsive, as I imagined. It was great. I read some data recently that show that One of the top predictors of how well someone's going to do with running a franchise business is how much support they're getting from their family. And so I do think it's a family decision. It's not just buying a business, you're buying a lifestyle, you know? So if you have a spouse who's not necessarily very supportive, that might be really useful. And again, my wife was really important because she forced me to ask important questions to answer important questions that I hadn't been asking up until that point. But if they have concerns, they might be legitimate. There might be reasons not to do it. That maybe you can't afford it. That maybe you don't have the capital. That maybe you can't afford the risk. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that are there. But having said that, I think to run a business, you have to be scrappy and you got to sell. And so the first person you have to sell might be your spouse or might be a family member. And so the way you're going to sell them is by being persuasive, but also by having data, by having the backup plans, by having really good reasons to to do it. Uh, other than that, I'm not marital counselor, and I'm still, you know, wanting to make sure I do right by my wife and my marriage. So I may not be the best person to ask of that, but I do think if you can get your spouse's support, that's great. And there's a difference between their support and their involvement. You know, my mm-hmm. wife is very clear. All right, you can do this, but I am not going to be part of it.
0: I'm not re- I'm not rolling up my sleeves and, I don't and want this, to make an employee great- doesn't oh, show up.
1: Right, right. You know, and part of it is, hey, if this goes down, it's on you. Um, yeah. But also she didn't want a threat to her lifestyle. I was one interested in running a business. That wasn't her interest. But for us, it was very good for our marriage to go through that process of making that decision together. And I really had to listen, take what she said seriously.
0: I mean, I imagine like it, there was kind of a f- fluctuation, like, and you had somewhat flexibility with the speaking uh, assignments, but like at one point, did you essentially have two full-time jobs where it was like the franchise and, you know, the speaking uh, assignments or how did you kind of manage that?
1: Well, you know, there's, there's time and then there's sort of mental, emotional energy, So I was committed to really being present in the business for the first couple months. So, um, you know, I worked very hard with my speaking schedule to kind of give me time to do that. But I knew I wanted to get back on the road speaking. So from the very beginning, um, I had to create leaders in my employees. I had to put systems in place. I had to make sure that um, while I was present there, that it wasn't dependent on me. That was hugely important. I think that every franchisee does it. We've all heard the expression that if you're not just running it yourself, you're not buying a business, you're buying a job. And I think it's okay to run things yourself. If that's what you want. But the idea is that it's something that is scalable. So from the very beginning, the plan was for me to not be there. So there wasn't a role where this is, you know, I do this myself, unless it's something I could do from the road, like bookkeeping or other kinds of things. But for daily operations, I made sure from the very beginning that I hired great people treated them well, and then trained them to leave. Like from the very beginning, they knew that I was not always going to be there, but then I made sure there's lots of communication and cameras and things so that I couldn't work at remotely. Um, so, you know, the first, in the first couple months, yeah, it was, it was a huge time burden and focus burden, trying to do the speaking thing while also running a business. But once it kind of got the systems in place, then it was sort of more of an emotional thing, just based off of what was coming up. So I'd be on the road speaking and then I get a phone call about a crisis or an opportunity or something that was there. And it was a lot, but it was good for me because it forced me to delegate and it forced me to to think big and to really focus on growing the business um, and not just running a business.
0: That's well said. Yeah, I'm part of entrepreneur organization and and that's a big focus. It's like not working in the business, but working on the business, like more at the higher level strategic and making those bigger decisions that kind of move it to the next step.
1: Well, I talk about that a lot too. When I coach franchises. I ask them, you know, what's your time worth? We actually come up with a number and the easiest way to do it is you just think of a number, how much money you'd like to take home from your business, what you think you are worth divide it by 2000 hours, which is 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year. Most of us are working harder, but just go with that number. And then you're going to figure out that's your hourly worth. So every hour you put in the business, you ask yourself, would you pay someone else that much money to do it? Would you pay someone else that much money to be sweeping the floor? you probably wouldn't. So if you wouldn't, then you probably shouldn't be doing it yourself. Pay someone else, but then take that hour you're not sweeping and use it on marketing, use it in going out in the community, use it on the the bigger things that matter. And kind of think of those terms It sort of helps you figure out not just what to do, but what not to do. And that's one of the observations I made when I wrote my book about wealthy franchisees. They're very deliberate about what they don't do, what they delegate to others, knowing how valuable their time is.
0: Yeah. And in the book, you had some really interesting analogies of just like wealthy franchisees, you know, they take the time, like one guy took the time to go skiing and, and would take a call from the slopes, but you know, he had his systems in place and then you had the non-wealthy franchisee working 70 hours a week, like an over leverage and just not be able to, uh, to make, make ends meet. But it seems like the unwealthy franchisee was probably doing way too much and just wasn't able to do the outreach that was more strategic and focused on, you know, cleaning the uh, cleaning the kitchen and dealing with minor issues.
1: Yeah, it's not that there's anything inherently wrong with working seventy hours a week if that's your choice. Yeah, the idea is to have the choice. Like I met some people. I met a, a couple. They run three franchises and they really run it themselves. They have just one assistant manager who assists them all three, but they're there. But it's because they love it and that's what they want to be doing. So. Great. Yeah, that's good. But the idea is to have the option um, because you can make more money, but you're not going to get more time. Your time is an account. So you reason. would say
0: the wealthy franchisees are much more deliberate with their choices well, and how they spend their time.
1: In fact, Patrick, in chapter one of the book, the way I define wealthy franchisees, people making good money, but they're also in control of their time, meaning they have choice yes. and that they have quality of life. You don't have all those three, you're not a wealthy franchisee all my work is about helping people understand how to accomplish all three of these, and tons of people do. The franchisees I interviewed who own 60 locations still only have 24 hours in the day, just like the person who runs one. But they're smart about how they invest their time. And those are the people who are taking the most vacations and going to the most uh, volleyball games, you know, to watch their daughter play because they put those systems in place. Their time is valuable.
0: Yeah, I have the section open, quality of life. And, um, yeah, that was a, a big point that you hit on. And then, I mean, some franchise systems are really like, you're buying yourself a job and there's no real, you can't grow out of it. You're going to be capped at like hundred K, 120 K. And you're working 50, 60 hours a week. And there's just not enough margin. Like how can prospective franchisees avoid those franchise systems? so that they can kind of have more control over their time and like make those choices, whether they scale up or scale down in terms of hours, instead of like having a job that they just bought.
1: Yeah, simple, don't buy that franchise. <laughs> I mean, if, if, if that's not what you want, then you know if, that's a good thing you have to figure out. It's like, what? How can I grow with this company? Like what's the potential, what's gonna be required of me? Um, I know of one massive brand we all know of, they represent themselves as a franchise, but generally the policy is that, Number one, you don't own it. They own it. You're buying the right to run it. And number two, you have to run it yourself. You can't be a, you know, sort of an offsite operator, right? You kind of have to run it yourself. And generally, they only allow you to operate one. So you're literally buying yourself a job. Now, for a lot of people, it's a great job. They want to do it. That can be
0: great. Yeah, making 200, 300K a year. It's really not a franchise,
1: though. It's really, especially because you're not buying an asset. You don't have anything to sell in the back end. So you're literally buying yourself a job, which for some people is a great purchase. And for me, and it's not for most people I meet who are getting out of one thing to get into franchising, um, because you're right, there's a cap on how much you can grow and the fact that you have to be there putting in the hours. You know, I didn't buy a franchise because I wanted to work. You know, I wanted to have choice. I wanted to, you know, to get other things. So I think if that's not for you, don't sign with that kind of franchise.
0: Yeah. And you, I think the key was you validated, you spoke to franchisees that the franchise brand introduced you to, as well as just franchisees that might be happy, might not be happy. And I've heard of stories even yesterday, um, on an interview of franchise system that was selling an opportunity as like really passive and that you only have to work five hours a week, but then he validated with franchisees and it was like 20, 25, 30 hours a week for at least two years. And it seems like, unfortunately, not enough prospective uh, franchise buyers take the time to meet with existing franchisees or even ideally some former franchisees that had left the system.
1: Yeah. Well, these days you buy anything. You look at reviews, right? You yeah. look at what other people are saying. It's like I have my list. When pe- people come to me, I had someone came to me for coaching. He's interested in buying a franchise. He wanted my advice on what to look for. And I, you know, I have some pretty specific criteria as to how to vet a, a franchisor. And the question is, do they measure franchisee satisfaction? Franchisees, the customer, you know, the, the consumer I look at as the franchisee's customer, but franchisees themselves are the franchisor's customer.
0: Yeah. are right, so, the client customer.
1: Right. So what is the franchisor doing to measure franchisee satisfaction? You know, there's companies like, you know, franchise business review, which are awesome. There's others, but are they even measuring franchisee satisfaction? The best brands do. And if they're not, why not? you know, for me, that's huge. I want to see unit level profitability, right? Like a lot, I, I, I go on LinkedIn, I see franchisors brag about how many units they're selling. Well, good for exactly. you. But are you keeping your promise to franchisees? Are they making money, right? If yeah. you're growing locations, but they're miserable and unhappy and business is going well, well,
0: that sucks. That's not cool. I think it's like a scale too. Cause like, yeah, every time I go on LinkedIn, it's like, the scale, like the worst kind of things, that like boost about how many locations you've, how many franchises you've sold, and then there's one of like openings, but doesn't necessarily mean they're they're successful. And then there's the more positive metrics like system wide same store sales growth year over year. Um, and there's yeah, there's metrics that mean something, and others that don't really frankly.
1: Yeah. But even that, Patrick, is based off of gross sales, right? so You can yeah. end up selling more, you know, having more higher gross sales, but less profit, which basically means you're working harder and you have less to show for it. So it's not that it's not an important metric. I mean, at least it shows that there's demand there, but I want to see the profitability because I'm not in it for work. I'm there to make money and I shouldn't have to have 10 locations to make money. I want to make sure the franchisor is supporting me with bottom line sales, not just the top line sales from which they're collecting royalty. And a lot of great brands hire people whose whole job is to help franchisees with those bottom line sales with profitability. So that's something else that I'm looking for. And then I'm looking for culture is the brand of a strong culture. There's great collaboration among franchisees and with the franchisor, Um, the leaders of the organization, you know, what's their background, how well they do Do franchisees like them. Is it, is it just, is it a family that owns the company? Is it a CEO who works for a larger institution? Is it private equity? You know, these things matter anyway, that's the kind of stuff that I look for in a franchise. And that's how what I advise other people to look for. Not just, you know, the promise that you'll be in business for yourself, but not by yourself. And we'll make your financial dreams come true and <laughs> the usual stuff.
0: Yeah, we've all said before. And I know you do a lot of conferences with franchise brands, and I, I can imagine the amount that you've learned from the executives of these franchise brands, the owners, and then the, the franchisees. Any big takeaways for those franchise executives or founders, presidents that, that are tuned in and how they can have a, just a nicer culture, a better culture where everyone rises up? It is a great question. Um, yeah. First of all,
1: commit to doing it like really don't pay lip service, to the idea of culture, like really be deliberate about it. You know, it, it's, it's great if you have a mission statement or a value statement, but you need to have policies and activities to operationalize those things. And the way I define culture in my book is number one, you have a clear set of beliefs where everyone's on board. So that's the same value system, same mission, the um, same perspectives on things. And then rituals, that support those beliefs. That's yeah. what religions are, right? It's a set of people who share the same beliefs, but then rituals that support those beliefs. So having a great franchise convention is a ritual that supports that belief, right? Some brands I work with, you know, the CEO might have a podcast every week where it's like motivational tips, helping people with the mindset. You know, Qdoba. I met one franchisee who every week has family. that's a great friend. Yeah, so one franchise family night where all their uh, their employees they um, have a potluck. The owner doesn't buy the food. It's a potluck it's a ritual that That's helps great. each other as human beings not just as co-workers and it creates more cohesion franchisors need to do the same thing to create rituals that create bonding that there needs to be transparency and or it's not just policies and contracts that share that bond people together but actual human-to-human relationships and so it's committed to each other's success um agreeing how we're going to communicate um, and really doing right by franchisees and also demanding that franchisees do right by the franchisor because everyone's entitled to make money. Everyone's entitled to respect. But the best way to, to build a great culture is to bring in the kind of franchisees that you want who are going to support that and not take that away. So <laughs> From day
0: one. Yeah. You, you got to have a nice gate.
1: Right. But you got to be deliberate about it and not just pay lip service. Not just think, well, we, we do something fun you know, or we give away awards. for so therefore it's a nice culture. That's not what culture is. It's about operationalizing um, a belief system and then having rituals that support that belief system.
0: That's well said. I mean, Scott, this has been an awesome conversation. Again, for those that haven't read your book, uh, Wealthy Franchisee, I had actually ordered like 10 books on franchising uh, as I just, there were a couple that I had read in the past, but I just kind of wanted to see how others communicated different ideas on franchising. And this was the first book that that I read and um, I really enjoyed it. And for, I think anyone considering a franchise, existing franchisee, franchise president, founder, executive team, they can all benefit uh, from, from the book. Scott, any concluding thoughts um, yeah, while, while I cool have up. you?
1: who would benefit. I think any human being who has a credit card and access to amazon.com or anywhere, they would all benefit from the book. So yeah. let me say that. Um, first, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to kind of to speak with you and share it. So i really enjoyed the conversation. I so believe in the franchise model and the idea that, you know, someone can buy an opportunity and get support and get the information um, and get the, um, the plan to build a great business. And the idea is there. I think for it to succeed, it's going to happen at, on top of the operational level at the human level. That's what separates wealthy franchisees from everyone else, and great franchise brands from typical ones. Is understanding that we're human beings and that we need to be able to relate at that level. So internally, it's our own mindset, and collectively, it's culture. And this isn't some soft skill, um, touchy-feely kind of thing. It really is the <laughs> differentiator because lots of people are running the same system, but not everyone's getting a higher level of success. And those who do, it's because they infuse those human elements into great operations, and that's what enables them to succeed. So. Focus on the human elements on top of the operational elements, and now you have their winning recipe.
0: I like it. Well said, Scott. I really enjoyed today's conversation. I'll leave a link to your your website and anyone that might uh, benefit from having you, bringing you in uh, to help their franchisees um, on the the franchisor level, bringing you as a speaker or as a consultant to do more comprehensive work, uh, I'll leave a link so that you can reach out to Scott. And again, thanks so much for joining. My pleasure. Thank you.